thank you so much, Niles, for joining me today. Very excited to, to chat about Nesman and, and, and your journey so far. It, it's been a really incredible one that you've had throughout your career and journey. So before we get into Nesman and sort of the, the catalyst for it, what it is, what you want it to be, sort of the mission and vision, talk a little bit about your your entrepreneurial journey, you know, maybe before Nesman, and then, and then we'll get into everything. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for for having me. Love um, of the podcast and, and and the focus you have on on folks who are disrupting and also creating social impact. So um, that that's definitely been a, a thread or a theme in the things that that I've been doing, especially you know lately. And, and we'll come to Nesmit in, ju- in just a bit. Grew up in the Bay Area. Um, we'll talk more about. I think a lot of my startups have have always connected to some personal thread or passion or, or background. Yeah. Um, went to Harvard for undergrad. So. So did my East Coast time went through my winters and uh, you know my obligatory kind of couple of years <laughs> in New York and and then and then came back um, to California and and Nesmit came um, right around the pandemic time but interestingly enough that was also a time where we were you know building a lot of other companies that were focused on how could we create kind of economic empowerment for a lot of different folks in in mm-hmm. different models, especially things that had um, been disrupted by COVID. So my first startup that I was a founding member of that um, I had made some capital on to be able to invest in things was in the mobile technology industry, very different from all the things that I do now. But I learned a lot in that process. You know, that that company ended up being part of a larger company that was um, on NASDAQ. And uh, I had a larger P&L and a global team and, you know, got a lot of great experiences from that. It's funny because I was reflecting with a, a friend of mine. Now you see QR codes everywhere, but we were the first kind of company that was really starting <laughs> to understand how to use it. And so back in like, I think it was 2009, I think we did the first like text call to action in the Wall Street Journal. And then we did the first QR code in a magazine. And people were like, what the heck is this? Like that type of thing. And Man, it's so, it's so <laughs> funny you say that. That was, yeah, I remember having this conversation like with my, with my wife and I was like, you know what? I was like, a little bit of a, a little bit of an applause for those founders, those companies who really stuck with the QR code because huh. it really, it, I don't think it really took off. Like it, you know, I mean, there was probably a decade there. It was kind of in this this not dead zone, but it was not really growth, right? You kind of saw it here and there, and you're like, you know, this is really interesting. I don't know why more people kind of don't utilize it, and it just didn't really go anywhere. And then yeah. all of a sudden, it, in in it felt like a week. It is everywhere. I'm sure these companies grew 300%, you know, in, in that time. And I was just like, you know, that that just goes to show like, you, you never know what, what what's going to be sort of this, this moment in time where, you know, for those founders that built those companies or even just you know, the, the, the employees who maybe had equity and, and kind of, it was just really, really amazing to see that their, their time is now. So go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we were fortunate that we had a bunch of things that wasn't all that we were focused on, but that was one, we always, you know, we were watching out Docomo in, in Japan at that time. It was being used a lot more there. And so yeah. we're like, definitely going to come here. But it also, you know, goes to show you that, that things that can be really efficient, really effective, um, you know, exciting. I was always into this notion of, of how do you make turn books alive through the QR code mm-hmm. and have yeah. around. Remember getting uh, drug I won't name 
person but getting drunk with a art curator one day and going into <laughs> his museum late at night and being like, we need to record you and put QR codes on all of these different yes. like, so yes. get it. But but you know, so so it's it's great to see that, you know, with the right push and in the right moments, even if it came out, there's these kind of positive byproducts. Speaking of positive byproducts, I mean a lot of you know, one of the companies that I had had to shrink at that time. It was a New York Times funded company that was all around how do groups tell a collective narrative and story together called and woven. And uh, it actually started off as me kind of wanting my father passed when I was young and I, I always wanted to know I was about to get married to my wife Alicia wanted to know what my father would say to me at this time this was in you know 2013 mm. or time frame and so I started just collecting all of this great content from friends and family saw that the metadata was pretty rich I mean this was obviously a decade before what we're seeing now in, in terms of generative AI but but you know you were taking you could finally understand the timelines of what happened in the 60s and 70s right and like you could understand he was in the navy so you could understand like where he was at different moments in time by leveraging location and so that became a new york times funded project that led into you never know where your startups are going to go and now it captures institutional knowledge for a whole bunch of organizations it focuses a lot actually on fashion brands and the stories behind the clothes that get created yep. so it, still exists as a wonderful company. But in that process, I wanted to make sure that all the folks still had jobs or we still had fun things to work on. So started a small little kind of, you know, call it like a personal venture studio. And, and we were doing all types of really interesting things. I've always been a interesting interested in small businesses too, as well as big scalable businesses. So had a, a salon um, that you know was focused. My partner came to this country from Italy with five hundred dollars in his pocket. My partner in the salon, and but he, and he, not much English, but could speak you know the language of hair. Right? And then he had this long <laughs> nice. long line of folks who who you know signed up. And I said, well, what if we had some capital and opened your own place? And he was very enterprising, but that place has become a place where a lot of folks coming to this country who, you know, in San Francisco, like they need to find a place where they have really great skills and, and can kind of fit that brand. We actually ended up shutting that down during COVID and turning it into a hair lab. So one, one entrepreneur was building a robotic haircut mechanism. This was huh. pre-vaccine. So it could do men's buzz cuts, which was pretty amazing. But huh. not many people wanted to sit in that chair though. So sure, was, sure, 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 sure. Well, <laughs> Well, ultimately, you know, so ultimately, we I think the thing that, that was best that came out of it is we built something called the Salon Box, which was just a mobile way for our stylist to go out. It was like luggage. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, the best thing on the market. And so that that's that's there. And then we also, we noticed that gyms were shutting down and so worked with a personal trainer who had a great life story. And, and we noticed that there were a lot of thousand square foot retail spaces that unfortunately would never come back. So we started looking at building out a system called Reset Fitness, which was for formerly incarcerated folks to get apprentice and become master trainers and, and potentially. Um, so we started a pilot there uh, that still exists. Uh, artists, a collective group of artists of color called Culture Drawn that um, Boundless Brooklyn, the book came out of, you know, early NFT stuff, like some really interesting things. One of the things we, we did there that we were experimenting with was uh, since a lot of people were working from their home office, one thing we thought about, you know, we worked with a couple companies to take the the company's values and have them have them pair them with an artist. The artist would get the commission. If you go to culturedrawn.com, you could probably see this, but the artist would get the commission for um, for the work. And then, um, and then it would be replicated like a thousand times and it would go to everyone's home office, right? So you would have 
this kind of beautiful representation, artistic representation of company values sitting in everyone's home office since they couldn't go to the office, right? And then you'd be supporting one, the artist that you selected, but at the same time, the whole community, even if another artist didn't get selected, would make money off of the replication. So sure. we had a framer and a printer and stuff like that. So that was that was cool. And all of these live in different iterations, but Nesmit was the one that really had a lot of legs. And, and what Nesmit was about, and, and maybe other folks were feeling this way because we were all in our environments, was the conversation you might have with family and friends to say like, hey, can we buy a place together, right? And yep. it could be a primary home, it could be a investment property. A lot of times, honestly, a lot of people were talking about, can we just have a second home together that we can get away to be in our pod together? Um, you know, whatever it may be. So people were, were thinking about what does home mean to me? How is home changing? If I can work from home all the time, can I live in multiple places? And yep. Instead of renting all the time, yep. can I actually have an equity stake in that? So had this, these conversations a lot. I reflected on my own experiences, which when my father passed, I grew up in, born in Oakland, then grew up in the People's Republic of Berkeley across the way. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, in, in, when dad passed, mom was an immigrant to the country. She was, didn't have a job, much community support, but she was smart and scrappy. And at an early age, at around 13, you know, we went in and we, learned how to refinance the house and take some equity because we were fortunate enough to have a home in a place that had appreciated. That really helped my mom out. We also ended up renting out the room to graduate students, renting out our room. So we'd have Nigerian math PhDs or Swedish physicists at the dinner table. And outside of sharing bathrooms, my brother and I talk about this, how much fun it was. But there was also a stability that we had because life could have been very different. We could have been moving around a lot. We could have been at a very kind of meaningful moment in, in our upbringing. But we had that home and that home meant a lot to us. And I always remember that. Um, so after the first startup that we talked about on the mobile side, and I had you know saved some capital, you know, decided with, you know, uh, how could I kind of deploy that capital to help other family and friends, you know, purchase places that seem too expensive in yep. the Bay Area. So especially multifamily, which is a really interesting thing to look at for folks is, hey, you know, there's a duplex or a triplex or, or and a lot of people jump to the single family home model, yep. right? But I think- yep especially in urban areas, like maybe you start with a, and and you either can live in one or two of the units, rent out one yep. or two of the units, and now you're offsetting some of your expenses, you're leveraging the depreciation on that rental income, the depreciation from a write-off standpoint, but you're all gaining the appreciation of the equity value over time. So you take something like a triplex in Oakland that starts off as a TIC where multiple people are living in there, they slowly move on, then it becomes an, a, a cash-generating LLC. You refinance in eight, nine years, and that check is so meaningful to each person, you know, and, and that they've seen the, the time value of money and, and so forth. So there are all of these different models. And, and so as I was reflecting on my past and I had done this now a few different times, I realized how just friction filled it was. Yeah. Right? Oh, it's From, brutal. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. brutal, right? Like I was the guy pulling data from Zillow, not just like a listing, but historical data and then pulling in rental data and, you know, for whatever, I couldn't afford the huge, the really great data. I could only get kind of this data and then I'd build a spreadsheet and I'd get my group aligned. And then, you know, then I'd look for a lender that was going to be open to a group kind of coming to them. And then I'd, yeah. I'd look, then I'd have to build an operating agreement that says, hey, here's the rules of the road so that we're all on the same page. So this doesn't cause any conflict. And 
And so that's what Nesmit in a lot of ways was solving for. And I had my co-founder who had two amazing co-founders who worked with me in the past companies. And one of them was like, hey, now there's no way you're paying me enough to ever afford the Bay Area. I'm going to go in with some friends to in a place in Joshua Tree because I love going down there. We can you know, rent it out. And, and how did you do it? And that sparked this Nesmit conversation. So like with every everything I tell people is, is start with some basic data and, and don't be afraid to share your idea with the world. So yeah. all we did was we put up a landing page for Nesmint and at the end of 2021 and flighted some Instagram ads just to see like, hey, is the CPA, the cost per acquisition yep. reasonable enough that if we ever had to turn on paid advertising, we could actually get people. And then we did some LinkedIn campaigns, which were pretty much nothing in terms of cost. And the response we got back from just a landing page with a product that didn't exist was overwhelming. Wow. All these people saying to us, how did you know we were having this conversation? I feel left out of this market. You know, they, you know, I'm, you know, an older millennial turning 40 soon or, or 30 something now. And, and I thought I would have a house by now, right? Like what are the different ways? And so we realized we had to build something and, and that's where Nesmith came in as this, um, as, as this both platform and, and, and company, um, that would allow for people take them through the process to pool their capital, you know, have their age their lending, their operating agreement, make good financial decisions, and ultimately finally own real estate together. Wow. So the idea is, you know, I think it's just a, I think it's also a great just, you know, entrepreneurial sort of exam, like, like advice is like landing page, some ads. I mean, that's not a big budget, right? I mean, pretty much anybody could do that sort of early stage testing like that to, to, to get just an idea if, if you want to go further. After you sort of got that initial, you know, data and response from just the landing page and, and, and some ads, I guess what were the next step? Was it like seriously going out raising? Was it saying, okay, let's go raise some money? Also, was there anything like let's look into even if this it's possible to kind of curate all these mm-hmm. documents in one place? Because like you said, the documents in real estate is a mess. Then you have the the form side. If, if you do form sort of an LLC, if it's an investment property or if you're, you know, if you're buying it as a group, it's everybody has to have socials and every all these different things combined and, you know, probably financial documents in there. And so, then you have your friends seeing stuff like, I guess, from landing page to feedback there, right? And then yep. when was sort of, you know, actual launch right and say okay let's was it go let's go raise some money and then let's actually build some tech yeah let me walk you through kind of the past seven quarters because it's been it's nesmit has followed a path and i was just chatting with somebody that like you almost it's weird because it's aspirational in an interesting way right and i hope it continues to be aspirational but as somebody this is kind of like the third startup experience and then you know working with a lot of friends and mentoring this doesn't happen all the time but but i but we were very intentional about each step so i'll walk through that process so the first thing so i look at the world and any business idea from a lens of three things desirability feasibility and viability desirability do people want this feasibility is this something we can build right or there are the huge blockers and then viability will this actually become a business and and union economics i think are becoming more and more important for startups right now right we know a lot of startups and we know the venture model is kind of broken right because venture the founder and the vc are often not aligned because the vc you know cares about and and maybe my vc friends will i think most of them will actually agree with this that 
you know, there's there's seven of those comp- ten companies that are going to go away, and and they really care about that one that's going to make a hundred x, and maybe the other two that make somewhere in between, and and therefore like the goal of you know I've just seen so many people take so much money. We'll talk about how we're looking at fundraising differently, and maybe in a different way. We did raise a, a, a round of funding, and how but how we're thinking about it because we've had a lot of great milestones recently. Start with the landing page. This was desirability. Do people really actually want this? Right. So just go out there, throw a landing page out, flight some Instagram ads, do some LinkedIn campaigns. Then now we did 200 plus user interviews, right? So the next Mm. thing was visibility, right? So we're like, hey, you signed up for this. You're on a wait list for this. Can we interview you, right? Like, what would you ideally like? What are you trying to do? Then in this process, we built what I call a manual MVP. So it's literally Google Sheets and duct tape, right? Like, it's like, hey, you as a group, Selena and Wade, you are um, two folks in Brooklyn who've been outpriced in Brooklyn, although you're professionals making decent money. So now you're thinking, hey, can I own in Hudson Valley, live there part of the time, rent it out to offset expenses? Okay. If we take you through a process that's highly manual, right? That's like, here's the process from we're doing the calculations in Google Sheets, we're keeping notes in Google Docs, you're filling out a Google form that will turn into an operating agreement, like all of those steps. Do you still stay with us through the process? And what do we learn through that before we go and spend a ton of money building something, right? So so we, we did this MVP and, and it... it turns out that the endpoint is so desirable. The other thing that we always have to be careful of, because I think one thing that kills startups is false positives. It's when someone says, I would like to do to do this, I want your service, or I want something. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. It's easy to say yes. It's not easy to give your time, your energy. And we literally saw, we took a small group of like 10 folks. And we saw people, show, very busy people showing up for one hour calls with us, walking through a sheet or a form or listings we compiled from another company, like things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, And, and so that said to us, the outcome or reward is exciting enough that people are willing to go through all this, but now we can make all of this much easier. Um, So when we had that moment, that's when we're like, okay, we're going to really start to build the team and we're going to, and we were already building in the background. One of our our co-founders is an engineer, was a head of engineering. And, and then, um, and then that's when we raised capital, right? And we were very deliberate and intentional about how we raised. So we raised some money from a, a, a great blockchain fund to operators who had built a, a really amazing company and made a, ton, a lot of money from that. But like we had a larger thesis that, you know, as you build fractional supply, you know, um, you'll be able to put it on chain and, and you'll make, you know, real estate more transparent three, five years down the line. Right. So not even focused on that right now, but it's great to right. have. And they had interest in it too, because they were building their own real estate portfolio. Got some prop tech experience, um, a guy named Chris Langford, who used to run Lowe's Strategic Venture Fund and uh, Lowe's like Home Depot. And he would he was very thesis driven, saw what was coming on the horizon. The other, we also noticed that there were a lot of professionals of color and communities of color who actually understood the notion of cooperative economics, a lot of immigrant cultures too, whether it's a Tanda in the Latino culture, a Hui in the Chinese, or susu in the caribbean culture whatever it might be um eastern european culture the notion of pooling capital was not new right like we're not coming up with but there wasn't a structure necessarily in the u.s 
that was built yeah. from a financing standpoint, a legal standpoint that felt you know easy, and then actually the tools to help someone through. But it was important that we we empowered those cultures, and we were finding a ton of professionals of color um, coming to our site and being and saying, "Hey, I really want to yeah. raise my hands for this." Um, so Concrete Rose Capital was another great fund. Um, they're amazing. They also give fifty percent. A lot of funds will say they give money back. They give a number, 50% of their carry and their fund goes to um, specific, you know, tech equity uh, opportunities. And, and th that was interesting to me. And then Vamos Ventures was focused on the Latino community. There's a huge amount of opportunity mm. for homeownership and it was yeah. already happening in the Latino community. So that was that was really important to have some of those folks, some early, early uh, executives at Airbnb. That was important because they saw, they. I, I see Airbnb as having some I'd like to believe that there's some, and, and they've kind of said that, that there's some kind of analogous points of building a movement, knowing that this kind of already exists on some level, but like people crashing with other people, things of that yep. nature, but building it into a movement where in 10 years, right, this is the main way you're going to be buying a portion of real estate that you can live in, spend time in or rent out or whatever, um, because it's going to be too expensive to, it takes you right now 10 years to save up for your primary. So maybe yeah. you don't have to do our primary first, right? Maybe we start with something else. And so getting that to be part of the, re the retirement plan or the, the financial plan of younger and younger people. So very intentional about how we, we raise the money. Cap table is 70% investors of color. Um, and I don't bring that up because it's like, hey, uh, this is not like a virtue signaling thing. This was like, there were capitalistic reasons for this as well as social reasons, right? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. So MVP, then we saw our first close in a very, very, un we got hit like with the, like everyone got hit like middle of, or kind of like Q1 of 2022 and the Q1 of 2022 rates shot up, right? Start yeah. to shoot up. Yeah. Everyone's inflation's crazy. Everyone's really, really scared. And obviously we, we're still riding through a lot of this right now. But all of a sudden people are like, wait, should you even be in the real estate industry? And the interesting thing about that was, and I was telling people like these short-term headwinds, yes, will affect us a little bit, but they're really long-term tailwinds. And the reason is if you look at the charts, even from 2019 to September of 2022, it takes you double the salary to buy the same home. Now, why is that? Mm. That's because interest rates shot up. Property prices that already were really high because of low yeah. interest rates, a few other issues, lack of supply, et cetera, they didn't go down at the same rate. No, they, they flattened, right? They softened. And you may have seen that in your Kansas City purchase, right? There's maybe a few more homes on, 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 on listed for a, a little bit longer. People weren't as competitive bidding up homes. But interest rates shot up, you know, at, at a level that we have historically in terms of just how quickly they shut up. So now the cost of home ownership require you to have double the salary in three yep. And no one's going to double their salary unless something really very few people will be doubling their salary in, in three years. And so you now have to either consider that or you have people who are like, I'm going to be a lifelong renter. Right. And and that doesn't feel great when when you feel like because we see the psychological benefits of home ownership and real estate ownership, not not as well as the financial benefits being the number one generational wealth builder. So so it was interesting. And, and so despite all of that, in our manual groups, we we had transactions go through, right? Like we had people get right. all the way to right. the end, right? And of this process. And so we're like, okay, that's, 
that's a real good sign for us. And at the same time, the, the team was building in the background. February 21st hits, we launched the open beta of the platform. You know, you have this moment that's exciting, you know, goes out on TechCrunch, right? You know, and you're not knowing what to expect, right? And even, even if this is your third startup, you're like, oh, maybe everyone's going to come on. <laughs> not everyone comes on, right? Like a lot of people take notice, right? And they're like, oh, this is really yep. cool. Like, yep. signing up, like that type of thing. But it's not like this, like all, all of a sudden moment where you're seeing things first. And so, and so, you know, I, I said to my team, look, we're going to be, we're building this for the long term. This is an yep. open data. We, we're not, no paid marketing or advertising. You know, let's take our time here. Let's, our goal is going to be a hundred qualified groups who are committing to investment in the next 12 months, call it by July 1st, right? We launch, you know, essentially March 1st, give us four months, right? To, to get there. So we're doing some webinars. We're doing, you know, different groups, you know, helping people understand people are coming on, people are telling other people about it. Um, so we're slowly getting to that hundred. We're, we're at a really nice clip towards that hundred. And I think it's important to create goals that seem hard but also achievable right and and have the whole team all focus on it that was this kind of great moment and then we actually end up doing a partnership with built and i don't know if people are familiar with built b-i-l-t built a, a phenomenal company they actually are doing something that also you're kind of like oh i wish this existed when i was renting but you can pay your rent and get yep. points right this is so great this is great yep. yeah you get points for 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 renting which is awesome and you can do it through travel Turns out now you can do it to help your closing costs on Nestman, eventually maybe a down payment or something like that. But we we end up, you know, the head yep. of home owner, John Lawless, you know, wrote an article about co-ownership. But now you've got all these, you know, call it urban millennial professionals, right, who are in cities all over the place who are saying, I'm not going to wait, you know, to get into the real estate game. I've, I've been actually waiting to do this. And so, you know, we think, okay, maybe we'll, we'll, I'll, I decide to scale up for another hundred groups, right? That'll come on just through this partnership. Next thing you know, we're hit with a thousand more groups, right? Like qualified groups. And so now, we're, now I would say we're in that active retooling stage, right? Where we're like, okay, how do we handle all of this demand? Nurture these leads because each one of these groups, I take 10 to 15% of the groups myself because I wow. want to be there through the process. And, you know, it could be a group of, I've got a group of four guys who own a cafe who now are getting the chance to buy the building that mm. their landlord that has two livable units above. Yeah. I have, you know, a group of, you know, unmarried women who are like, we, we were kind of told we had to wait till we found a partner and have kids and then buy our primary home. But it's, you know, we're now in our early 30s and we've been paying rent together as roommates for a long time. We right. want to find our own. Right. I have intergenerational families like, hey, you know, we want to move in together and make yep. this work. So these incredible stories where they're like, we've, we've either, some people have put the money in the bank together already, but just didn't know what yeah. to do, what the next yeah. step was. So, so we're taking our time. We're in this really unique moment where we now get to really focus on what is the right process for all of these folks. And then, and then once they purchase, how do we help them manage? And then on the back end, on the exchange side, how do we help people exit? Because eventually certain people might sure. want to exit. And then how do we allow for people who already own homes to maybe offer pieces of their home? So we had people who'd, who'd come to us and say, hey, I own this um, cabin in Tahoe. And, and you know, I've always, uh, you know, I, it's been great. It's, it's, it, it's increased. And but I'd love for someone else to own part of it. I'd love to get some liquidity. Could I sell 25% of right. it to some 
something else. So, so we have three kind of general groups, either groups who are already there together, they've talked about it, we enable them. Groups that are partially formed that will match them with someone else who also is looking at, or we may um, take a short-term investment, so call it a year or two, we'll be a third or fourth or fifth partner to help them out, right? But eventually our goal is not to be a company owning a ton of real estate, our goal is to make more homeowners, right? And then the last is what we call no group, no problem, where we'll have more and more opportunities for people to just purchase a portion of a property. Gotcha. Um, and the last thing I'll say about that is one of the things we're really pushing forward with is this notion of lifestyles and not listing. Hmm. And I say those words because it's like, okay, think about how you want to live your life and less about the initial place you're going in the sense of you are interested, you love wine, you want to have a getaway place, your budget is X, you live here. Maybe Napa and Sonoma is not the place to do it. Right. Maybe Los Olivos, an up-and-coming wine mm-hmm. area outside of LA, is the place. Is the how to do it. You love cycling. You love art. Whatever it is you do, how yep. can you start to think about that? And how does that that lifestyle actually pay for itself, right? And so, how does the real estate, you know, offset with rental income? How is the equity you're gaining from the appreciation as well? helping you kind of live that life. So that's something we're just kind of actively thinking through with a lot of our groups. There's so many, so many questions. I'll try to narrow it down here. Right, that was long-winded. Uh, I mean, no, I love it. I, I, I love it. I think I, I want to take maybe one case study, right? Let's let's yeah. look at that from through the kind of, not the entire process, but like give people an idea, right? So let's say you have, you know, four or five couples um, right. and maybe they want to have like a, you know, get a place together as sort of this, you know, secondary place, vacation place, and then also maybe, you know, rent it out or something like that whenever whenever they're not there or, or whether the couple's not there. Is that process then, is it always creating like an LLC to buy it together? Or do you pull, do you just have a bank account where you put funds in and you sort of, I guess, maybe just walk us through yeah, that I'll process. Walk through, I'll walk you through that process. So, so we go through a process for folks where we kind of, what we try to do is get people, get groups, what we call nestment ready in five to six weeks. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they need to buy then. But what it does, so the first step is we, we focus on what is your why, right? Like, why are you mm-hmm. What's yep. the goal? Is it for, for you to have a place to get away that pays for itself? Is it, you know, we'll have someone say, you know what, I just, I don't even care about the cash flow as long as it breaks even or gains appreciation that pays for my daughter's college. We have all different types of, you know, um, different kind of whys. So we focus on what is your why. Then we look at your search criteria, right? Like, what are you looking at? Like, what are the, the you know, so you think a lot of people know exactly where they want to go. A lot of people don't, right? A lot of people are like, hey, and, and that's where the platform really comes into play. And yep. help kind of look for different places, but we'll, we'll look at, you know, maybe two or three different locations based on what they need. Then that group of, of folks will, will then, will then, will then actually give them what's called a property analysis. So it both sits on the platform and on a document. And the goal is not to pull the trigger on any of those properties, but just to say, here's how they paper it out, right? Like, here's how, you know, this is the forward looking appreciation of Nashville, of Denver, of, you know, Atlanta or wherever it might be. Um, here's, you know, or, you know, a gun quit Maine because you want something about a code. I don't know, whatever it may be. Like, here's what it papers out. Here's how much you can rent it for. Here's how many personal days you could spend there if you want, that type of thing. So we get people thinking about what's the type of property they want, right? And then, um, and almost identifying it. Now, 
most of the time they'll ne- they won't get that one that they want because they'll go fairly quickly. And, but that's okay, right? Like sure. unless they want to like jump in, and if they want to jump in, we can move a lot faster. But we're not about pushing people. We want people to get things lined up. Next, we actually have them meet with our lender partners, and so our lender partners actually then kind of put together the right path for them. Usually, you know, you can have up to like four signers on on, on your typical kind of QM loan, right? Okay. And there's all types of there's certain things that you're navigating through that process that it, it's great to have. And, and our partners all are educated on groups and have done groups and things like that before. Then, then the, we'll you know narrow it down to okay, this is the location. Connect you with an agent. So now, as you're looking at, you're, you now know how much you can afford. You now um, you know know the kind of economics and the type of property you're looking at. And then, as you're looking with the agent, we actually start you on an operating agreement, which is okay. essentially going through a checklist. You don't have to go through all the legalese, right? But we have it there for you. But you're going and saying, hey, this is how I want to handle things. I want to. And it, there are some things around managing the unknowns. Let's put three to six months of mortgage in a separate account or an escrow account or something that we don't touch, right? Unless something that happens because the worst is when something happens to somebody and you never know. And then all of a sudden there's a panic. But if you give yourself three to six months, right? People can calm down. People can understand, okay, we've got this extra capital we set aside. So oftentimes when people give us their their budget for their down payment, we we say, hey, let's let's take a percentage of that and put it away actually. Like let's let's go there. Let's have that as, as extra. So we try to help people manage the unknown. So then they go through, fill out the forms, a lot of times groups love to figure out what their LLC name will be called together, right? And, so and then, <laughs> Like naming a boat. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, you know, you that, you, there, there's kind of a hit there. And then, you know, and then, and then typically we will, um, I mean, there are different models, but typically once the place closes, we will then make sure that the the lending is a, can be assumed uh, can be assumable, and that the title can be um, put into the LLC, right? And so that's kind of the process that we go through. Now you have an operating agreement that's driving the LLC. Um, now and, and so everyone, so all steps of that process, we try to take people through both. It's in the platform as a checklist. We have a relationship manager who kind of helps you along that that process. But at the end of the day, you know, you now have your place. You've got your agreement. You've got your lending. You have a sense directionally of what it should look like from an economics perspective. Um, at that point, we then put you in touch with a property manager that we vetted in the area, um, and then we give you a dashboard. Uh, wow. if, you and three other couples are all going in and, and you're going to use it, right? Versus and, and rent it out part of the time. Um, we're, we're creating this thing called a group calendar where we call it a group draft where you guys get to draft, you know, different weeks. And so it's like get together for a beer or wine and draft mm-hmm. together, like mm-hmm. which we and you'll circle every year it'll be different right like it'll be a way to to make sure and so so now you can draft your weeks and then you can choose to rent those weeks out or keep those weeks for yourself right so it's a little bit of like a um like almost like a mini timeshare model but but through the ownership of your group yeah you as like a three or four you know family uh family group and then you're in the management dashboard you're looking at your p l you're looking at your equity as it increases and then should you decide that hey I need to exit, you know, this, you know, my 25% in this property. Right, um, right. We give you a few different mechanisms. Usually it's a first right of refusal to the other, to the other owners. Like, Hey, you guys want that to, you want this 25%. Here's what it's currently valued at. Gotcha. And there's amongst family and friends. So you could do a private, you know, kind of uh, offer to family and friends, or you could put it on the exchange and it'd be more public. Really cool. So yeah. I want to talk about, uh, there's, it feels like there's so many different, revenue streams that are possible here but talk a little bit about the business the current business model versus 
perhaps what what might occur a little bit down the road here because there's yeah, so, so many so layers. Right now, um, you know, there are a lot of places you can monetize, but there's there's kind of three main places for us. So the agent is a big part of what we we do, and, and you know what we try to do is essentially try to make this a layup for agents who get groups, right? And because groups are hard to deal with if you're an agent, and because yep. then the agent's asking a ton of questions, or the group's asking a ton of questions. But since we're getting the group vetted, uh, qualified, pre-approved, everything ready to go, basically, we usually take about forty percent of the agent's commission there. And and if if you know kind of the agent referral world, yep. you know, I tell my cousin in Aspen, hey. I got a guy for you and I put them in touch. I get 25% just for that phone call, right? So like wow. we do a lot for that extra. Some agents might be like, oh no, but like, but what a lot of the agents we've seen is they they realize this is one, building their another revenue stream for them, right? Because yeah. oftentimes it's not competing with their, their solo buyers buying single family or other things. The other thing is it actually increases their, what they call their sphere of influence, their SOI. So now you're introduced to four families who are buying. Now, if any of those four families buy again, they know you, right? And that's gold because most of agents' business is repeat business and we don't take yep. any commission. The, that repeat business and, and so forth. So, so we usually get about one percent of the transaction price there, and then, uh, and then we have the we do everything from you know, let's say you guys are getting a, a beach place together or something like that, you and three other families. Um, we furnish the home, get it ready for Airbnb. Um, my wife happens to be an interior designer, so. Wow. We Comes, but we get twenty five to thirty percent off. Uh, I'll give you the kind of the sausage making. We get a percentage yeah. off that, but we pass part of that on to the customer, but we take part of it as well, right? So there's furnishing, furnishing, purchasing, maybe some layout and design if needed. Uh, then we have the dashboard, which is a much lower expense, but you know, think of you're paying a, a certain monthly rate to just know everything is in one place. How LLC notifications. Yep calendar, all of that stuff. Um, and then there's a bunch of services you can imagine along the way, everything from insurance to other things that we get a small, small cut of. So, and then at the end is as it's being sold either outright by the whole group or in fractions, we're also getting 1% of that. So yep. our lifetime value um, yeah. ends up being, you know, fairly sizable at the end of the day, which allows us to invest in, into those relationships. And and what we're finding is that, and we'll see, right? All of this is to be proven in two, three, four years, yeah. right? Because we're yeah, in this sure. is that people want to buy more than one of these, right? They they now are like, oh snap, for the price of you know, yep. you know maybe I'll delay that car three, four more years, and now I have an appreciating asset here, right? Or you know maybe you know whatever it may be, people are now saying. These trade-offs that didn't exist where they couldn't spend their money now exist, right? Well, for the same price of buying a home, you could own 25% of several homes, right? Totally. Exactly. That's exactly the thought, you know, and... Um, or you end up, you know, starting with a multifamily in the city you live in and, and that's paying yep. for itself. And in a year or two, you're taking equity out and then you're, you're, you're able to, you know, so there's, there's all types of models and we're here. We're, and I would like to tell people we're not, you know, we're not, we're not giving investment advice. We're not like, you know, yep. and, and we're not, you know, saying to, this is not a silver bullet. In fact, there are times where we'll say to somebody like, maybe you should wait, you know, maybe you should. Totally. Yeah. I but, think. You know, we have to like at least be like here's here's the guide here's the education let's let's make sure that you know you're you have this opportunity well it's beneficial for you guys to 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 do that due diligence right and and to make sure that this is right for them because like you said your revenue is sort of not dependent on 
you know, them being on the platform for a long time, but like it, the lifetime value of a customer is so much higher if you're bringing the right customers on board and educating them and say, hey, maybe wait, maybe wait a year, right? Maybe wait, you know, a year and a half. Like that's different. Many startups won't tell you that, right? They won't tell you like, hey, don't, don't come, don't get our product quite yet because you're not quite ready. So, but I think that, 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 that's really powerful in a lot of ways because look what we saw with the, 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 the financial crisis. A lot of people weren't ready to buy homes, right? A lot of people were not ready to, to, maybe even invest in, in, in homes that they were. So to me, that education part is absolutely paramount. No, totally. And I mean, and that's why it's big for us to continue to grow. And it's been great to see the growth, but also continue to grow to be a sustainable company. You know, so for the founders kind of out there, you know, I've been on both sides of it, but where you get dangled with large valuations and take a ton of money and, and stuff like that. But then- yep. You're yeah. making trade-offs on decision-making. Like, you know, if you were to tell me, like, instead of a 500-person company, we're a 50-person company, but we're still doing what we're doing and we're sustainable and we're helping people, you know, build generational wealth who might not have had the opportunity, yep. I'd take that in a heartbeat versus being a 500 500- you know, person company that is, mm-hmm. and some of some of my investors will be like, "Wait, I thought yeah, you want." Yeah, yeah. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> but I think there's something. I but I now I think there's the possibility of building it. But I think you just got to build it, you know, right and have a solid foundation and and be able to make decisions because you, if you're chasing the valuation, if you're worrying about your burn all the time, you, you'll make a lot of decisions, right, to push people through a process that they just might not be ready for. So it's important that we can have integrity and, and do that. I want to end here. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I want to end here on, uh, you know, a little bit about, you know, the future and maybe some of the goals and successes, you know, you and the team would like to achieve. I mean, there's so, the space is so dynamic and it's, it's, it's ever fluid, right? It's, it's, it's up and down. It, it, it goes through ebbs and flows. But as you look maybe three to five years down the road for, for investment, you and the team, what are some of the goals and successes you would you would like to achieve? Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of the goals and successes. So I think five years, if I look five years down, I'd like the notion of co-ownership and co-buying to truly be part of like the cultural kind of yeah. ethos, right? Mm-hmm. I think it kind of is on the fringes now, but it's moving towards. And because you have the pressure of these economic trends that you mentioned earlier, um, helping push it. And, and so... Um, I would love for Nesman to be the one that helped kind of usher that cultural kind of trend in. And then I think, you know, maybe give that three year in an ideal world, maybe three years people are using the term Nesment the way they might use Airbnb, right? When when it comes to co-ownership, like, oh, I'm going to Nesment together. And it's not, that's that's not to like say, because we want arrogance around, but we want to be a brand that's taking care of people that's known for like, hey, we're going to help you to get on that path of home ownership. And then I think five years, we actually, and we're doing these right now, we're doing very real pilots where it can't just be about people wanting to do it and hacking the system, right? Like we know people are hacking the system. There's gray areas, there's things like that. I would love in, in, it's not often that an early stage startup goes and brings their platform to Fannie and Freddie, to the CFPB, the Consumer Federal. But we did that. We said like, hey, this yeah. is 
We're yeah. launching our beta in two weeks. I'm down to walk anyone through this. And we were sat in those rooms and shared what we were doing because I do think there has to be more of that kind of convention. It's not just about breaking things, right? It's about, can we, you know, yes, sometimes you'll have to break things, but like, can we actually say, hey, rather than breaking things, let's get on a path together where we we uh, we shape and re- re-evolve. Can we rethink about what family, home, real estate means? Um, so I think in five years, so three years culturally, cultural momentum, five years kind of structural changes is, is what I'd love to see. And then in 10 years, I just love to see this be, you know, part of you know, the the process of generational wealth building, of community. Um, I'd love to see more families be able to either, you know, live together and communally live in own places. I'd love to see friends, you know, go through the process. And, and um, yeah, I think that's kind of what we're, we're aim, aimed for. Um, and we should see a difference in the rate of, you know, whether it be certain minority groups being able to own and afford. I think there's going to be something really fascinating with baby boomers and you know their properties and understanding hmm. where that that capital goes but also I mean, i'm going through right now like as my wife and our, my my uh my my parents my mom and, and as her parents age what do we decide to do right there's there's triplexes all over san francisco because it used to be three generations living together right wow uh, for yeah. some people that might be like, ah, I don't really want to do that. But there's, there's <laughs> interesting about that because if there's a housing supply issue and other things, like can we build a, a new evolved way to think about either three generations living together or three yeah. friends, three families living together? Are we able to, I'm a big proponent, not necessarily of, you know, I, I'm not against low income housing. I think that's really important, but I'm really, especially in a place like San Francisco, really focused on all housing, but I'm also focused on, can we get like our professional class of teachers firefighters, police officers, folks, to be able to live in the cities and the communities, not just the city, but actually the community that they serve and protect and and service. Like, how do we create these models where we can put roofs over the heads of of people who really, really are in desperate situations, but also those who, you know, maybe have been left out, but are are also servicing the communities um, as well. So... Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much, Nas, for taking the time. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Grant. I appreciate it. I look forward to just staying in touch, you know? Yeah.